in Africa on Palm Sunday. It's quite an event. People are shouting, dancing, waving palm fronds. The excitement is a credit to them. It is a wonderful day. But those palm branches that they cut off the trees, I imagine the, the homeowners association having a fit in those developed communities as people just hacked off branches to wave because of the procession of Jesus. It was like a bunch of people on a Memorial Day parade waving little American flags because the palm branch was a symbol of the national state of Israel. And so everyone was caught up in a fervor. Is this the day? Is this the day when Zechariah 9 is going to be fulfilled? That's the parallel passage to what I'm reading today. Let's stand together and hear God's word. We're having difficulty. Is it me? Is it something I'm doing? Uh, I don't want to get in your way. I used to have a guy pray for me every Sunday. Lord, hide Walt behind the cross. And that's a good prayer for us today. Hide him behind the cross. Matthew 21, this is God's holy and inerrant word. I, I can shout if you want to cut that thing off. Okay, ma'am. It could be it could be a judgment call. Maybe we ought to sing a hymn and say a prayer. <laughs> Matthew 21. And when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, there then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, "Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a coat with her untie them and bring them to me and if anyone says something to you you shall say the Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled saying say to the daughter of Zion behold your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey even on a colt the foal of a beast of burden and the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid on them their garments on which he sat. Most of the multitude spread their garments in the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the multitudes going before him and those who followed after were crying out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the multitudes were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. May God add his blessing to this reading of this portion of his holy and inerrant word. Let's be seated. It's the second time the city of Jerusalem is stirred or shaken. The language is very strong. Two Greek words, but they're synonyms of the powerful effect of Jesus coming into the city. First is the baby. When those wise men, not wise guys, the wise men came into Jerusalem inquiring about where the baby was born. Remember? They went to Herod and the whole city was shaken. And now, as he's coming in in the triumphal entry, the city is stirred. Let's ask the question, though that the multitudes of people asked, who is this? 
Well, you know, of course, you've read your Bible. It's Jesus. They were hedging their bets with the answer. Jesus, prophet of Nazareth in Galilee. That's a a safe answer. That's not good enough. We know he's the warrior king. He's the one that shows up in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord before his incarnation. He's the one mighty, and he carries a sword with him, and he shows up at different times. I just love that uh, time when he's a face-off with Joshua before Joshua is going to go into Jericho. You remember? And he says, take off your shoes. Take off those army boots. You're on holy ground. Oh, I love that story because he identifies himself as the captain of the hosts of the armies of heaven. That's Jesus coming in here on a donkey. What is going on? Now we have these answers that we do in Sunday school, you know, he's trying to be gentle and lowly and humble on a little donkey. But listen, look at your passage carefully. Seven out of 11 verses are about the donkey. It's good to ask questions like, why in the world? Would good old Matthew spend so much time on the donkey? Well, you have to go to the Old Testament. You have to be reminded of what happened when two warring factions were getting ready to fight and they decide to come to a treaty. And it's called a covenant treaty. And it's ratified. You remember the the vision that Abram had? The vision in the night in Genesis 15 is about Animals which are cut in two, those animals don't have any names. Kids, they weren't pets, okay? So they didn't have names. It was okay. They cut the animals and then something would walk between. It was not a person. It was a jar with fire coming out of it, smoke. And Abram didn't understand that till probably Genesis 22 when he has to sacrifice his son Isaac. Because God's saying in the vision, this is a covenant treaty I'm making with you and with all your descendants to follow, just like the people in your area do covenant treaties. But guess what? The parties that are coming together don't get to walk between the pieces and signify that if anyone breaks the terms of the covenant, that's what's going to happen to him. He's going to be torn in pieces and people will be walking through him. Now the covenant treaty that God makes with Abram and his people states very loud and clearly, nobody is worthy to walk between the pieces, only him. An archaeologist in 1935 discovered some stuff about the area in which we're talking about in Abram's day. And they came across a letter describing how covenant treaties were done They weren't done with just animals. They were done with a young male donkey. In fact, in one letter, a guy named Ebold II to a guy named Zimri. These are not names that I see in the playground here. You haven't given your kids those names. The letter says, we went to the ratification ceremony of the covenant treaty between these two warring peoples, and they brought puppies and lettuce to be cut and separated for the people to walk. That won't do. I brought a donkey, a young male donkey, and we cut him and separated his pieces and walked through there. So now come back to the story. What, not only who is this Jesus, what's he doing? Why is he doing this? He's riding the young 
male donkey to signify that a covenant treaty was being made by the holy God between himself and his people. In Jacob's blessing to Judah, you know, in Genesis 49, the, all the sons are blessed. Not a whole lot of good happens to Reuben and Simeon. But in Judah, it says very clearly, the scepter will not depart from the house of Judah. And he's called a lion whelp. You remember? Because coming down the line is not just David, but the son of David, the son of man, the Lord Jesus himself, the lion of Judah. And it says in the blessing, he will tie his donkey colt to the choice vine. The choice vine is Israel. So Jesus is acting out what it means to have that ratification treaty, this covenant with God and his people. That's what's going to happen at his death. And it has a global reach to it too, because that's how people like you and me got in it. It's going to be to the nations. It's not just for Israel, but for the nations. Because the nation of Israel at that time rejected the Messiah. Remember? And so Jesus is saying, here's the twist. I'm bringing the donkey as the symbol of the covenant treaty that needs to be ratified, but I take the place of the sacrificial animal. Why? He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, we're, we're nice folks in Washington State, but if I was preaching like this, everybody would be up on his seat going, yeah, hallelujah, and they're not even Pentecostal. <laughs> Shouting from their hearts the exciting truth of God's gospel. This is good news. We can't stand beside ourselves except with joy and maybe tears. Had the people known what was really going on that day, that Palm Sunday entry into Jerusalem, I don't think they would have been going waving palms. They'd have dropped the palms and maybe gotten on their knees and a hush silence would have fallen on everyone. This is powerful stuff. But what got in the way of them understanding what was going on? Their expectations. For hundreds of years, the rabbis had interpreted Zechariah 9 to describe a political kingdom to come into being. The overthrow, overthrow of the Romans. And that was the only way they could read it. So they were excited. Now here, let's back up a little bit. Let's be honest. Where are our expectations today? COVID comes in and clobbers us. And that strange election devastated a lot of people. People were going, what? What's going on? God doesn't promise to give us what we're expecting. What he promises is to give us what he intends. Thank the Lord, right? You look at your heart and you go, I'm glad he didn't give me that. Because there's a fascination with us. And it's not just a Western problem. It's in Africa as well. A fascination with idols, what the Bible calls idols of the heart. You know, in the New Testament, it doesn't refer to this much, but it's assumed. In 1 John 5, the very last verse says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. He wasn't talking about the pagan gods and goddesses. He's talking in Old Testament terms what goes on in here. The idol of reputation, the idol of acceptance, the idol of achievement, the idol of success. All these are working, and they rival. They try to rival 
the supremacy of only one being who is the Lord Jesus. There's just no room in the heart for Jesus and all that junk. When I was a young man, I was 16 years old, when we came to the States in 1960 from the mission field. After about three months, I had exhausted myself on cowboys and Western TV programs and ice cream out of the carton. You know, those little cartons that you could just throw that one away and get another one. It's a wonder I didn't blimp up, but uh, the metabolism when you're about 16 means you can eat an 18-wheeler truckload of food and just not even phase you. Oh, I fell in love with Hopalong Cassidy and the Lone Ranger. But after three months, I was ready to go home. Africa. I couldn't stand it. I was different. Oh, I was weird. See, I had a language problem. I, I, my first language was African Chiluba. So when you asked me a question in English, I had to translate it to understand it, then translate my answer in English back to you. And everybody thought, hmm, this little boy's got some problems. <laughs> they had no idea how many problems I had. But I decided, you know, either put up with it or run away from home. And I love my parents. No way. I, I wasn't going to run away from home. Where would I go? But to put up with it meant to live for people's acceptance. That's a huge idol. That's a, that's a debilitating idol. You know, the, the idols of the heart, <laughs> they promise a lot, but they have a horrible problem delivering. A lot of young people that are succumbing. But when we, as parents, deal with surface sin and not go to the heart, what we really want to do as a mom and dad is find out what idol is working there and address that instead of the surface stuff. In other words, if a child has a problem picking up something off a of dad's dresser, you don't go into a long lecture about thieving. You go into a discussion about what do you love, son? What do you love, daughter, the most? And with the Spirit's help, the child comes to terms with that and realizes she loves or he loves himself the most. But I was a mess. High school, college, living a double life. I didn't want to hurt my parents, but I wanted to be accepted. Terrible stuff. I went to, after college, I went to work in New York at Pan Am. That's heady stuff. I, I was a manager at the airport at JFK, and I had a lot of responsibility. I thought I was something. I was sitting Southern, by the way. I should have said, I thought I was something. Just <laughs> translate for you. And God humbled me, and we had a layoff, and I was one of the ones to go. And I went down to Nashville, and with a bunch of buddies, we started a nightclub. And I was doing great there, making a lot of money. And I remember one night, I relieved the bartender on the front bar, and I had a bunch of customers here, a bunch of customers there, and I had this little wait stand where the waitresses would come up and order drinks for their tables, and we had this one little girl, bless her heart. Now, that, that's not a good thing in the South. <laughs> but she was, she was dear. Her name was Jean, and she was a dingbat. And she couldn't remember her order. She had five drinks there, and I'm the busy bartender trying to serve there as well as take care of these customers. And I feel eyes on me. And I knew it wasn't the cops. We had them taken care of. We paid them off. And I looked up, and it was my dad. I'd written a letter back home. That was back in the days when you could write letters, and I still can't text. I can only text with finger. And I'd written home. I said, don't worry about me. I'm working in an entertainment club. Good night. If you get a letter like that or get a text that says, don't worry about me. I'm in an entertainment club. You worry. 
<laughs> and there was dad and I got the bartender back in his post and I took my dad out to the parking lot to talk with him and I was so embarrassed. He had a perfect opportunity to unload on me. He could give me a real good sermon at that point. But he looked at me and he said, Son, your mom and I are kind of worried about you. That's all he said. The love that came out of that one little sentence. A lot of our young people are running away from love. And I was running as hard and fast as I could from God. And Dad asked me another question. He just said, Son, how you doing? And oh, I lied. I had dark circles under my eyes. I was glad we were out in the parking lot so he couldn't see. I was a mess. I had two jobs and I was working. I wasn't sleeping. You can't sleep and enjoy life when you're looking over your shoulder expecting bad guys to get you. found out just before Dad visited that the Dixie Mafia was owning about 51% of my club. It's no fun working for anybody, but working for those guys, not good. And I lied, and I said, Dad, I'm doing fine. I was living on vodka and grapefruit juice. Terrible combination. And he said, well, you know, we love you. He walked off into the night. Things came to a head, and I wound up losing that job or, or walking out on that job. And you're not supposed to leave a job that's owned by those guys. They let me know real good. But I got to New Orleans, and they didn't give me a prodigal son homecoming because the jury was still out on this guy in my heart. And one night I got so desperate, I decided to end it. I had a sports car I loved. Oh, I loved that car. But I was doing about 148 on the I-10 going out of New Orleans, and I plowed into the side of a, into the back end of a car that was on the side, on the shoulder, thinking that it was okay to do that because it was an abandoned car, but I didn't realize the driver and the passenger were changing places. Had they been in the car, they would have been killed instantly. We had a big fire, and the manager of the Holiday Inn across the interstate called Slidell Memorial and they brought an ambulance but it took a long time highway patrol showed up 3:42 a.m. in the morning Sunday morning and they said they couldn't get to the fire it was so hot so intense but they said two guys just suddenly appeared walked straight into the fire like they were on a mission pulled me out of the fire and then pulled me away and just stood there waiting for the ambulance and then when they ambulance came over they turned me over to them i was pronounced dead on arrival at the hospital my dad is a dear man he's in heaven now but the doctor asked me where are my parents could i give them the phone number to call my parents i said no you get me cleaned up and then i'll be seeing my parents and he said we, we don't think you're going to go through the next more the next hour just let them know the next thing i knew dad's standing there he can't look at me and I can't look at him. I was a mess. I looked into a mirror there and they had me sitting up because I was bleeding so profusely, but I thought I was looking at the guy in the bed next to me. It was another thing with a curtain between us, but I was looking at myself. I looked like Frankenstein. My ear was cut off and latched onto my shoulder here, plastered there. I said to the nurse, that's not supposed to be there, is it? And I was cut from here all the way around. Everything was peeled back. My right leg was broken in four places, and the nurse said, are you going to set this? And the doctor looked and said, he's not going to need that where he's going. And the nurse said, you ought to be thanking God. I said, ma'am, no, no, I've made a mess of this. Dad was out talking in the hallway with the highway patrolman. The patrolman tell him, tells my father, these two guys show up, and, and then we're getting ready to interview them, and they disappear. They said, Mr. Shepard, we think your son was helped by angels. 
we're in a funny position because we don't know how to prosecute this thing. We don't know how to, how to cite him. And I was in the hospital for many months and oh, these nurses were preaching at me. These ladies of color were impressive. They were very large, very forceful, very direct. And they were just preaching to me like I was the worst pagan in the world. Well, I was. And one day I just got frustrated with this big lady and I just said, ma'am, if you don't quit this, I'm going to get up out of this bed and kick you. And she said, wait just a minute, baby, you can't do nothing for yourself. You can't even go to the bathroom by yourself without my help. And so I left her alone. (laughs) But the following night I gave up. I could turn in my bed, that's all I could do, and I turned to the wall and I said, oh God, can you forgive a guy like me? I played the game, and I played it hard. I abused people that I love and you love. But if you can forgive me, give me a new heart, because this one's messed up. And I prayed that prayer in Chiluba, and I talked about my heart in this manner. I'm rotten to the core. And I went to sleep. Didn't hear any angels thank the Lord because that would have just freaked me out real good. The next morning I felt different. I realized it's the first time I'd had a good night's sleep in five or six years. This nurse that was always on my case, she comes in, takes a look at my face, and she looks at me and goes, oh my God. And I didn't know what in the world that meant. She goes running out of my room, down the hallway saying, oh my God, he's got the Holy Ghost. (laughs) Ma'am, shut up. She's blowing my cover. I was kind of Billy Bad in there, you know. The Lord began working. My dad showed up that very morning. He said, son, I went to the salvage yard to look at your car, and there's nothing, absolutely nothing we can do about that car. But he said, under the bucket seat there, under the driver's seat, I found this. And he had an old Bible that they had given me when I was 10 years old. I was 27 then. I carried it in the car just as a good luck charm. <laughs> oh, that's great. And he's holding my Bible and he says, son, it was just covered with blood. He says, do you want this? I said, yes, daddy, I do. And his old King James Schofield notes. And that Bible began to talk to me. I mean, talk to me personally. It wasn't too long after I got to the hospital, I was reading Luke 15 again, the prodigal son story, and I caught something that I hadn't seen before. On the way home, the prodigal is saying to himself, he's rehearsing his speech, and he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And I went, whoa, I have sinned against my parents. That's what's missing right now. I need to be reconciled to them. So I called my dad's secretary. He was working for a firm that did the Superdome in New Orleans. He was in charge of the drafting for the project. And his secretary said, you don't need an appointment to see you, Daddy. I said, yes, I do. Please don't tell him who it is. Sin is funny. Sin makes you think that the very people that love you the most don't want to see you. So I got this appointment, and I went down there. I had to humble myself. I was on crutches then and had to ride the municipal bus down to the New Orleans Center, very close to the French Quarter, and got out, got up to the elevator, got up to the dad's office, and he was surprised. He said, son, you don't need an appointment here. Are you my next appointment? I said, yeah, Dad, we need to talk. Could we find a place where just you and me? He said, yeah, we'll go to the conference room down there. And I told him, Dad, I don't know if you want the details, but I've really sinned royally against you and Mama, as well against the Lord. 
I know the Lord's forgiven me, but Dad, will you forgive me? And he cried, said, sure, son. And I thought, oh my gosh, what am I doing to him now? I took the bus back home and I was going up the sidewalk to our house and it was hot. It was in August, sweat pouring off of me and I hear our phone ringing because back then we didn't have air conditioning, so I had screen windows, screen doors. Mom answers the phone and then she comes to the front door and she says, Walter, it's for you. I said, well, tell him I'm, I'm coming. Got up the steps, got into the house. I'm out of breath and I get to the phone. I said, hello, and it's dad's voice. And he says, welcome home, son. I tell this story to encourage you grandparents and moms and dads because we all have them in the family, the prodigals out there who've been living for the wrong expectations, the wrong idols. Any idol is the wrong one. And the temptation is to get angry, get a prayer group together and get angrier. And the third thing is to just say, I'm fed up. I'm done with it. And I'm here to say, please don't do that. Don't get angry. Don't take it personally. The sin is against the holy God. And the only one who can really truly forgive is that holy God who sent his son out of a great love for you and for your child. Instead, spend time on the welcoming. Spend time getting ready for the welcoming. See, what kept my parents together when they knew I, they didn't know what I, they didn't know anything about me for six years except the worst. What kept them together was a covenant promise that God has made with us parents that salvation is for you and your children. That doesn't mean the child is automatically saved just because he's born in a Christian family. That doesn't mean that. It means, though, there's a special relationship. Even when the kid is off in a far country, there is that relationship mom and dad have to pray with hope, to pray with trust that the sovereign Lord of the universe who is big on sparrows, you hear me? And he really is big on the children of believing parents. And according to 1 Corinthians 6, doesn't have to be both parents for that special relationship and, and tie there. This is his word to us. Let's take him at his word. Let's live with it. You know, one of the things that Jesus says in Luke's presentation of the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. I'm grateful for these poems that remind me what this is about. Luke says, Jesus says, Jerusalem, his own people do not know the hour of their visitation. And I just ask you, fellow sinner, okay? We're not some special category of people now. We're sinners saved by grace. We're messed up. We've got a Bible study group or a prayer group on Fridays in Biloxi, Mississippi for guys who, here's the qualification. You've got to be messed up. You've got to be really messed up. And you can belong. And we pray for one another. A lot of single dads begging the Lord, come on, Lord, bring my wife to the end of herself. Come on, Lord, bring my kids to the end of themselves so they can know they have only one who can save the Lord Jesus. Today, do we know the hour of our visitation? He's here. He's here. And you have a choice. You have a choice. You can keep on trying to rescue yourself. Keep on kind of living both sides of the street. 
I'm a Christian, but uh, I'm working here. I had these cops, I, I'm a former police chaplain, and these cops would say to me, well, when I get my life straightened out, I'm going to then come to... I said, it doesn't work that way. One guy says, I'm going to clean myself up for it. No, you're not. You can dress up, but it won't get in here. This is where the real action happens, the heart. Or you can choose to let yourself completely be taken over by this holy God who loves you with an everlasting love. That's what he came to Jerusalem to do. Ratify the treaty in his own body, in his own blood. Hallelujah. That's the gospel. And he wants us to embrace that truth with all our hearts so that with his power, isn't that what the gospel's called in, in Romans? The gospel is the power of God to salvation. That means at the front door of justification as well as sanctification the whole life we live here as the Holy Spirit is pleased to make us more like Jesus. The power is the gospel, not in trying to fulfill a bunch of regulations and rules. Thank you, Jesus. You've rescued us from that. Let me pray with you. Lord, we pray for each other here. You're the great shepherd. You're the one who is the lover of our souls. We thank you for that, Lord. But we pray for one another as some of us are going through some real agonizing decisions, agonizing disappointments and discouragements. Praying for those who especially are concerned about loved ones who seem to be in a far-off country. Oh, Lord, I pray for a girl that, in this bunch of people named Jessie right now. Lord, would you show her how beautiful, how lovely, how more wonderful you are to make all this trash in this world that glitters pale in insignificance. Be the blessing for this church. May this be a place of refuge for many families to see your gospel go far and wide, even to the nations. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.